Hello and welcome to the Rambling Runner Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Chittam, and this is the podcast for all the dedicated amateur runners out there who are working hard to get better while balancing running with the rest of their lives. Our show is presented by ASICS. Not only that, fun little tip, we're actually going to be doing a live show for Relay down in Orlando Prior to the Olympic trials, we'll be announcing that. I think later today, I'm recording this on Friday morning. So be on the lookout for that. Also, that will be that is also presented by ASICS. ASICS is just coming in strong, and I absolutely love it. I'm doing a long run later today, and I'm trying to decide which ASICS shoe I'm going to run in. It's either going to be the Evil Ride Speed or the Magic Speed 3. Kind of depends on how fast I want to go. Also, it's a little rainy outside, and the Magic Speed 3 is just such a beautiful shoe. I don't know if I want to get it all wet and dirty. So we'll have to decide later, but go to ASICS.com today to check out their unbelievable stylings. I cannot speak highly enough about those shoes. Today's podcast is with Carrie Bradshaw. Carrie is a fantastic runner, a 309 marathoner, who at the age of 40 found out that she needed to have a double hip replacement because of bilateral hip dysplasia. Holy cow, what a thing to find out, especially at that age. Usually you hear about hip replacements, especially, you know, sometimes you hear about knee replacements, but especially hip replacements happening much later in life. That is not Carrie's story, and this was a fascinating conversation, not only about what happened to her and why, but also about the recovery process. So let's get into it with Carrie. All right, Carrie Bradshaw, welcome to the show. Hey, Matt. Thanks so much for having me. This is so exciting. Not only do you have an incredible background and just a really cool story that I can't wait to dive into, people are going to see the name of this podcast episode and be like, holy cow, Matt has now, is this maybe a new 2024 goal? He's interviewing fictional people. Carrie Bradshaw, of all people, is here on the podcast. Obviously, you're in on the joke. I love oh, yeah. this. We'll, we'll dive into like the, all the amazing reasons why you're on the podcast, but there are going to be certainly a large contention of the audience who are going to see this name and immediately connect it to the TV show Sex in the City. So I love how you're in on the joke, by the way. Oh, yeah. So so before we get into you know, the back, your background and your amazing like <laughs> kind of like foray into the medical side of running, oh, yeah. um, give people like how, how much you're in on the joke with just the business oh. you created several years ago. Okay. Well, since this is like, you know, two friends, I feel like talking next door. Um, yeah. So I, my maiden name is Tassoni Italian. I met my now husband in my late twenties and funny story, fun fact, this is a little bit embarrassing, but on our first date, had a little bit of wine, got a little tipsy. And I told him, I said, Hey Ben, did you know that if we got married, my name would be Carrie Bradshaw? And he did not run away. So yes, I, my name then became Carrie Bradshaw. And as you know, I started a fitness business in Australia called Sweat and the City with Carrie Bradshaw. So yeah, I'm totally on the, uh, totally all about the joke. I love it. And for people who are still confused, so Carrie Bradshaw is the main character, Sarah Jessica Parker's character in Sex in the City. So I, so this, is, this is really cool. Did, how many people who signed up for that class or that business that you had like immediately knew it versus the people who were like not quite sure what this was all about and like were had to be kind of told what what the connection was oh i would say 99.9 percent .9 of everybody in my that i knew that i've told back then that was you know like 10 years 10 15 years ago knew knew the connection but you'd be surprised now like the younger people most I don't even make the reference now. Like when I'll call and I'll be like, "Hey, my name's Carrie Bradshaw." I used to be like, "Oh, you know, like Sex in the City." And they'd be like, "Oh yeah, we love your name." But sometimes people will be like, "Huh?" 
So I think some of the younger generation doesn't really understand, you know, the joke. So I love that's it. That's a well, little, but everybody I, I, there did. See, I was curious because you never know, especially in that era, like how TV spreads globally, right? Like I wasn't, I yeah. had no idea if Australia, you know, had that show oh, or not. They love it over there. They love, they love the show over there. They were all about it. Okay, I love it. All right, last, last thing before we get going, um, I actually did send a text message to my friend Allie Feller. I'm like, you're never gonna believe like the name of the person I'm interviewing. She's like, that is that is awesome. I she know. Goes, I yes, I met. I te- I texted. We used to email from Australia. Oh, get out. Yeah, because I emailed her because she had talked about her chest chafing, and I wanted to tell her that my chest chafes too. Okay, this is getting TMI already, but Allie would approve. <laughs> that is so yes. funny. All right, so Carrie, the the main reason. Again, there's many reasons, but one of the main reasons I couldn't wait to get you on the podcast, like I you know, mentioned just a couple of minutes ago, was your foray into the medical side. So can you describe to people what ailed you in terms of your hip, your, your hip condition and how it kind of percolated to the surface and became um, something that you, you know, became aware of at, you know, at a certain point in your life? Okay. So as everybody probably knows, I've had, now had two hip replacements and I'm 42 kind of crazy. So, um, I grew up being, I was a soccer player growing up, a really competitive soccer player. And I always had back issues. I never knew I had hip dysplasia. That's what it's called. I never knew I had hip issues and had the diagnosis until I turned 40 years old. However, I had my bait, my two kids before then, and my hips were starting, you know, to prevent me from running a lot. Um, and I had, I had a lot of hip pain during pregnancy and in my lower back. Uh, but it wasn't enough to stop me from trying to run. I kind of just thought it was a normal pain. Like I remember it was kind of like is like in your hip flexor area. It would be this like pinching feeling. Um, and I kind of just brushed it off, normal, you know, running pain. Um, it wasn't until 2021 uh, when I was on a morning run that my left hip it went from just that little pinching feeling getting worse and worse to completely locking up on my run home. It was the weirdest, craziest, scariest feeling. And like I had to limp all the way home. It felt like something deep inside my bones was almost broken. That's strange. So was it, had you experienced this in some of the other sports that you'd played? Now, I mean, you played soccer in high school, you had a torn ACL in high school. So like you'd had issues with your lower body and you were playing, especially a multi-directional sport. Had you seen it kind of pop up at that age or was this something that kind of got slightly and progressively more noticeable as you got older? Um, okay. So to answer your question, no, I had no symptom, hip symptoms when I was growing up and I played competitive soccer. However, I had a lot of lower back pain. I have back issues. I think looking back and from talking to some doctors, I think my back was compensating for my defective hips. And that's why I probably had the lower back pain. So it was coming out with, uh, you know, other aches and pains were kind of, you know, it was that those were presenting themselves. But re- when really, I think it was all about my hips not being formed correctly. It wasn't until I was in my mid to late thirties where I started having, you know, nagging, pinching pain in my hip, left hip. Um, that I thought was just like, eh, um, you know, this is, it'll come and go. I'll go to the chiropractor, get my hips adjusted. Um, and then, like I said, that day where I was running in 2021, it went from being nag progressively, you know, more worse nagging to, oh my God, I'm stopping in my tracks. Like, this is crazy. 
Yeah, and when you have that moment, did it? What did was that the paradigm shifting moment in terms of the kind of help that you thought you needed, or what did you do next in terms of addressing what was becoming a more serious problem? Well, you know, you know, as a, as a runner, I'm like, oh my gosh, what's wrong? I freaked out a little bit, but then I would kind of be like, all right, well, maybe it's just, you know, I, I would try. I was in denial, um, but eventually, you know, I tried to run again. It would do the same locked up feeling. Um, it was really bizarre. It got to where at night it was keeping me up. It was like a shooting pain into my back, down my leg. I would Google everything, which I know you're not supposed to do. So I finally made my first appointment with, um, I'm in Houston. And so we have a lot of really great doctors. I made my first appointment with, um, a hip surgeon, um, in the med center. And that's when they diagnosed me with, um, congenital hip dysplasia, which I had no idea what that was. And they also said, you know, my labrum was torn. Oh, geez, it, that's that is wild. So we should set the stage here, too, because it's not as if like you were someone who was new to running and had, you know, kind of eased into it. And then all of a sudden, wow, like what's going on here at this point, you know, for the, for the preceding seven years or so, you had really, you know, taken running by storm in terms of like your progression in the sport and really like, diving full full steam into it. So, you know. You, you have this great um, article that, that, that came out it was like this past week or something that you, you showed me, you know, talking about how like your husband, husband was like, I don't know if my wife can, you know, what was it? Like you, you told him that you wanted to qualify for the qualify for Boston, Boston. Marathon. Yeah. He's like, slow down, slow down. Like, I don't know if this is going to happen this year. Like you quickly like got right to it and like you became faster yeah. than him and, and you're kicking butt. So like you had already had this really good collection of years of running really, really well. Mm -hmm. I guess once you started getting more information about your hips, how come this sort of thing didn't rear its head earlier in the process for you? Why did it take so long for it to become an issue? And I say so long kind of in quotes here because, again, mm -hmm. you were still very young, but it's not as a congenital disorder. You think of something that's like right. been there the whole time. So why did it kind of rear its ugly head, you know, kind of seven years into the process here? Well, there's a couple things about this. Um, so with congenital hip dysplasia, basically... Um, you're born with it. And my hips were not formed correctly. The sockets don't cover the hip all the way. So it's um, the number one cause of early osteoarthritis or arthritis in young adults. Um, I didn't start having this. We're runners, so we're crazy, right? So I put off a lot of hip pain for a while and didn't start having, you know, the severe pain till I turned 40. One of the surgeons I interviewed and met with, I met with several, told me, Carrie, and this is, this, we can all relate to this. He goes, most people would have been in here in the ER 10 years ago with your pain. And he oh. goes, and he also said though, I think the fact that you are a runner and you're strong, you know, I, I strengthen my core and my glutes and try to, you know, maintain that to keep myself healthy. I think I was able to manage the pain and my body was able to compensate, if that's the right word, my body was able to handle the, you know, uh, my body was able to make up for the defective hips because I had that strength. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I wonder, do you think that you were slightly aware of the hip issue and that's why you strengthened those areas so much? Or was that just like part of your life? Like you just like to you know, be strong and be an athlete and that that was going to happen no matter what? Um, what started me with the exercises uh, that was, be, was, I, was that I had an IT band injury in 2013. And actually, Jason Fitzgerald, I was in Australia at the time. 
he does the strength running. I had actually reached out to him back way back in the day and he gave me an, an IT band, um, strength training, you know, routine. And that really, it was to prevent the, IT, you know, to get my IT band uh, problem better. That ended up strengthening those glute, me, the, you know, the specific glute muscles you need to protect your, your IT band. So I think doing those exercises, it was like my medicine, right? I didn't really enjoy them, but I knew that I had to do those regularly in order to be able to run, increase my mileage and compete at the level that I wanted. And obviously I'm no doctor, but hearing that you have IT band issues, I guess, isn't a surprise if you also have hip issues because it just goes right down the chain. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And the back issues, the lower back, it was lower back all along and a little bit of hip and the IT, but IT is good now, knock on wood. So when your doctor's talking to you about like, Hey, any normal person would have been in here 10 years ago. Obviously that's like kind of like a backhanded compliment, right? Cause you're sitting there like, all right, yeah. that must mean that I'm pretty tough. Like, did you have a pretty good sense even before this, that like being tough was one of your positive qualities as an athlete? I, I mean, we we're runners. Like I love being able to talk to you about this because most people I've, you know, been interviewed by are not normal. I mean, are normal people and not runners. I mean, yeah. And he, he's like, he, they think we're crazy, the doctors. And they have, he had a sense of humor, but he said, yeah, most people would have probably been in the ER 10 years ago, but also I may have had less pain because I was doing those specific exercises that were stabilizing my hips. They were messed up still, but I was able to get by. Right. And the torn labrum is a tricky one, too, because I know there's a lot of people who ha are just walking around with torn labrums and yes. don't realize it until they get medical imaging, even if it's not even hip related. They find out later like, oh, oh, and you, in addition to that, you also have a torn labrum. Like it's kind of like people who have like stress reactions in their shin, but don't have painful shins. Like They don't even realize it until like they have you know, medical imaging. We had this whole podcast a couple of weeks ago with Matt Fitzgerald and Ryan Whited about this whole process of like, Hey, like if you just like take imaging with about someone's body without having the context, like the imaging might tell you that there's a whole bunch of injuries, but they're not in pain. So, right. so it's not really an injury. It's just kind of like an underlying thing in their body that maybe isn't yeah. connected to uh, a pain response. So that actually is interesting that you brought that up and you'll find this interesting so when they did my initial x-rays, you know, I keep in mind, I went to some like six or seven doctors. Some, one of them was out of state. I talked to over the phone, this first doctor. Um, he, so the MRI that they did the first time it, uh, um, it did not show the extent of the arthritis in the first hip, the left hip, the left one was the first to go, first one to go. So they were confused. They're like, well, dysplasia cause, can cause arthritis, but we're not seeing a lot of arthritis on your MRI. It was the angle of the MRI. Sometimes that happens. It's not until they get in there that they see it was like bone on bone. I have pictures I can show you later. They were nasty. So that delayed kind of what the problem, you know, discovering what the real problem was. So they suggested PT because they said, Carrie, you know, if it's your labrum, we can do PT. A lot of people are runners and they have labrum problems and, you know, and they're fine. A lot of people, they said a lot of runners have a torn labrum and they're fine. We can, we can get your, you know, hips stronger. So we, I, that's, that's the way we started. And yes, I was getting stronger, but that deep grinding feeling was still there. And I would talk to the doctor's assistant regularly and they were so confused. They're like, we keep studying your MRI. We don't know what this is. We're going to send. So I met with them and the doctor came in, who's one of the best in Houston. And he said, Carrie, I'm going to send you to this specialist who deals with dys dysplasia patients. So he passed me on and got me into like the number one hip dysplasia specialist. So that was the next step in the process. So when you finally got 
the diagnosis and ultimately the prognosis that a hip replacement was in the offing. Talk to me about just like the emotional and mental response to that, because there's no way we're the same age. There's, there's no way that you <laughs> saw that one yeah. coming, or even if you had an inkling that, that you thought it was going to be happening like that early on in your athletic journey. Um, yeah, I, that, I was like, this sounds crazy. A hip replacement. I mean, I was 40 years old. Like, what does that mean? That sounds scary. Um, the, actually the doctor that I went to that I just mentioned, the specialist, a lot of, so fun fact, a lot, not really a fun fact, but it's a fact, um, a lot of hip dysplasia patients who are younger, if they catch it early, there's this procedure that's even worse than a hip replacement. It's more intense. It's called a PAO. Don't ask me what that stands for. Something, something osteotomy where they actually have to, so they can, if you catch it early and you do this big surgery, they cut your pelvis and rearrange it. And it's a huge recovery more than a hip replacement. So we were considering doing that procedure for me, but the doctor said, Hey, keep in mind, they didn't know how bad the arthritis was at this point. That doctor said, Hey, if I go in there, I see a little bit of arthritis. He was looking at the MRI. He goes, but if I go in there and you have arthritis, I have to close you back up. We can't do that. And that's when hip replacement is the only option or just ride it out until you can't walk at all. So then I went to the next doctor and the next doctor. So, um, Luckily, I didn't do the PAO surgery because I it, they would have had to close me back up. Um, you can only do the PAO if you're younger and you don't have the arthritis. And it, honestly, it sounds awful. And I feel so bad for everybody who's had that done. So went to the next surgeon and talked about the hip replacement thing. And I was just like, this is nuts. So I tried anti-inflammatories, prescriptions, eventually started platelet-rich plasma, which was just crazy expensive. Tried everything. I was like... And at that point, the doctors were saying, you can't run with hip replacements. So I was like, I'll just do the hip replacement. And they're like, well, you can't run. And yeah, And that's exactly where I wanted to go next here, because so often we hear that. And I also wonder how much of that is connected to the age with which most people get hip replacements, right? Like my, right. Like my dad's great. My dad has two knee replacements and things like that. Again, I'm 43 and he's my dad, right? So he's in his right. you know, early to mid 70s. And so many people can relate to this in terms of the age of this. And we had Dr. Stone on the podcast, I think four to six months ago, who's out of the Bay Area. Um, and he's run the clinic and it's, they're on the cutting edge of stuff. And he talked about how, you know, getting these kind of replacement surgeries is not necessarily like a running death sentence. But at the same mm -hmm. time, like I didn't know anybody who like would have right. had these surgeries, and we're still able to, right. we're still able to run. Like it was like if they were active, they were doing non-impact sports. So, what was your process after finding out? Okay, really, the only thing we can do here from a long-term solution perspective, and not from a band-aid perspective, is hip replacement. What was your process of you know either grieving your running life or oh, trying yeah. to figure out a way? around that prognosis all right folks two sponsors i want to give a shout out to before we get back to my episode with carrie the first one is for the long run podcast if you're enjoying some of the road to the trial series here on the rambling runner you got to go check out jonathan levis podcast 
for the long run. They're doing some really interesting stuff over there heading into the trials. I love Jonathan as a friend, but as a podcaster as well, because he really dives into what is going on with someone beyond the running. And I think that is just so fun to listen to. And especially when you hear someone going after a huge goal, which Jonathan has done himself many times, and so many of his guests are doing it as well. So go check out For the Long Run, wherever you listen to podcasts. In addition, I want to talk to, talk to you about V.02, a coaching app based on the science of legendary coach Jack Daniels. High schools, clubs, and universities from all over the world are having great success using V.02. Since 2017, in fact, Marietta High School has won a combined nine 7A state titles in cross-country in Georgia. Their coach, Jack Coleman, said the features of V.02 are exactly what he needs as a coach, the ability to create coaching plans that are individually personalized within each group is a feature of his that he absolutely loves. And as a coach who uses VDOT, I can say the exact same thing. That is also why I love it. So VDOT is offering 20% off their annual subscription for first-time coaches using the platform by using code RAMBLING. That's 20% off. And you're going to absolutely love this service. Download VDOT02 in app stores or visit VDOT02.com to start your 30-day free coaching trial today. And remember, use code RAMBLING as well. I mean, it took a while. I, I wasn't, I was down. I was in a very, uh, you know, like I felt like something had been stolen from me, but I wasn't going to give up on my search. And I was trying to figure out there has to be a miracle or there has to be some way that I can fix my hip pain and do what I love. So I, I re- did my own research. I would stay up so many nights looking for somebody like me. It's hard to find. Um, long story short, the doctor that who I ended up going with was the only one who gave me his blessing and felt so confident in the new technology, the new prosthetic parts for the hips. And he said, Carrie, yeah, I have no problem. You can run. I mean, there's no guarantees, no promises, but he's one of the best. And he said, I have no problem. But it's a very controversial topic among orthopedic surgeons about letting, about giving patients the green light to go run or play impact sports. Now, I don't expect you to speak for these people, but at the same time, you obviously spent a lot of time learning as much as you can. So can you help me out with like what the various arguments are for either side of that of that conflict, of whether whether yeah. or not to allow people to do it? Yeah. So um, the ones that were on the no way or you're crazy if you try to run with the hip replacement, basically, there's just not enough research and data. That's what they said. And these prosthetic parts... Uh, that the new ones that are really good that Dr. Stocks told me about, he's the one, you know, he's my savior and all this, my miracle. They, um, they don't, they don't have enough evidence cause it's fairly new. Um, they were also saying, you know, these parts aren't always going to last you the rest of your life. So what they were saying is you're a little bit too, you're, you're in a weird stage of your life for these surgeries. It's complicated because that earlier surgery I told you about, they're really, you know, intense one. I was a little too old for that with the arthritis. And I was a little too young for a hip replacement, according to the earlier doctors. They're like, if I were you, I would try to wait it out five years. And I'm like, you know, it's tough. And they're like, and we don't even think you can run after that. Um, they said, because the parts will wear out. If I get the hip replacement done this early in my life, I might have to get another one. And a revision is a lot more complicated than doing the first one. They said, it, there's a chance it would wear out. Um, like in 20, 30 years. So they were worried about A, hurting the prosthesis and two, having to get a revision because that's just a big mess. 
And right. then, so if I go to the pro side, you know, to Dr. Stocks' side, yeah. Yeah. he was like, he has some examples that he shared. He's done like 6,000 of these. He, um, super honest, super brilliant. He was, he, his argument was, so I was like, wait, all these other doctors, I mean, these other doctors are saying this. And he said, yeah, I mean, I don't have a problem with it. I had a competitive basketball player get his hip replaced 19 years ago. And he's like, I thought he was just going to be playing in the driveway with his son. When he told me, he asked me if I could play basketball. No, he goes, he's an international competitive basketball player playing out multiple hours a week. I asked him, why don't you come in 19 years later? Let's just do an x-ray to see how that new hip's doing. He said, it looks like the day he put it in. And he was doing intense basketball. He said the new, he is so confident in the new technology that these things are going to last a while. But we did have the conversation that let's say in 25 years, so I'm 42 now, let's say, you know, what is that? 60, I made 67 or 70 that I need a new, I need a new replacement socket, a cup. Are you willing, he basically, we came to the, this is what it came down to. Are you willing to get 25 to 30 years out of these hips and possibly have to have a little bit of a revision or instead of 35 to 40 years, and, you know, to give you that extra time without having a revision. And I don't know what normal people would say. And I say normal loosely, like non-runners, but I feel like most of us would be in the same boat where we're like, yeah. I will take 25 to 30 years to do what I love and have that surgery when I'm 70, if I even need it, you know, just to have these years back and do what I love. I'd rather do that than play it safe and always wonder. Well, in 25 years, we're going to be living in a virtual reality world, right? right? I mean, mean, who knows what they're going to have? (laughs) I'm like, I'm willing to take the risk to have another surgery, dude. I have two kids right now. I'm going through a hip replacement at age 40. I mean, super sexy. Um, (laughs) This reminds me of like the John Mulaney, the John Mulaney stand-up special. I think he might be like this his second one where he's like he talks about like getting like a mortgage, and they're like, yeah, like you'll be paying this mortgage off for thirty years. He's like thirty years. I'm not going to be writing you a check in thirty years with President Jonathan Taylor Thomas. Like that's not going to be a real thing. It reminds yeah. me of like trying to predict like how we're going to feel like when we're in our seventies right. or whatever. Right. And that was kind of what I was trying to weigh because again, I was re- doing all my research like we do at night. Like, gosh, I like, cause I was torn, you know, I didn't have somebody to follow and that's what, you know, that's what I'm so happy to be able to do now is to bring this awareness. If this is, if any athletes around our age are going through this, I didn't know it was a risk. And I, I, so Dr. Stocks, when I went, met with him, he was like, Carrie, why don't you just schedule a hip replacement? Again, I was in denial for November. It was, I met with him in the summer. He said, schedule it for November. This was 2022. And if you're not ready when it comes, just cancel it. I mean, he was super laid back, no pressure. Um, I didn't know for sure, even a month before, if I was going to go through with it. I was in a lot of pain, limping around the block. It wasn't until the week before um, that I was like, all right, I guess I'm doing it. Well, let me ask you about that, because I think when we get very proactive about our care, it's easy to go from being our own best advocate and getting all the information that we can possibly need and making sure we make the best decision. And sometimes it can also morph into basically like shopping around for the answer we want. Oh, yeah. Right? So like, how did you navigate that process to go from like, all right, am I, am I just looking for someone to tell me what I want to hear? Or am I really getting the best kind of care here? Because I can imagine trying to navigate that line could be tough. 
Right. And that's why I was so scared because I didn't know what the right answer was. I had this other amazing doctor and I went, I would go back, I went back to him as well. And I told him what Dr. Stock said. And he was like, wow, that's ballsy <laughs> for him to give you the green light to, you know, that he thinks you can do that. And I'm like, he's, but then later he actually did come back and say, you know, I agree, Carrie. He goes, I, I, you know, basically he had heard a story about another girl who was a swimmer or an athlete and was running. Um, but that was later. But he said, you know, there, he said the same thing. There's, there's not enough um, information. I, he goes, if you were my wife or my sister, I would recommend you just try to wait it out and suck it up for five more years with the pain just to be safe. But doctor, I knew all these doctors were super reputable. Luckily, Dr. Stocks was able to back it up with a couple stories. And he's, I just trusted him. Um, that's, yeah, he gave me the answer I wanted. But I also, you know, asked the hard questions. Um, but there were no guarantees and that's what was hard. It's not like you're going in and getting, um, your broken arm fixed and you know, it's going to be fine. It's like, I don't know how this is going to feel afterward. I have no idea. I'm going to have a metal hip. Right. I mean, you, you tore your ACL in high school, so you'd gone through the rehabilitation process and the no, surgery and all I that. I never got it fixed. I forgot. Oh, you never I, I got it fixed? I, oh. So this is a side note. I, I tore my ACL when I was 12 years old. I played very competitive soccer in, in Houston and, um, I was just about to turn 13 and when, um, complete tear, um, the surgeon back then, I don't know if this is currently what they do, but what are the advice they give, but they said my growth plates were still moving. So they couldn't do the, um, main, you know, the major surgery to fix the ACL. So I just went to a lot of PT and, um, you know, tried to get my quad strong and everything. And, I was able to play and I played varsity in high school with, with no ACL. However, I was never, I never was as, I, I never was as confident and as fast. I was scared. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Okay. Thank you for correcting me there. Um, all right. So I'm sure one of the other questions that you must've been asking was, all right, if I have congenital hip dysplasia in both of my hips, how come we're only talking about one of them in this process? Like what was the process by which you determined like, okay, if both of my hips have this issue, you know, what are you, what are we talking about here in terms of like choosing one or the other or both, or just the timeline of events? So the left one was the first one to go. <laughs> so it's kind of like having two kids. You have your challenging one and then you have your less challenging one. I'm speaking for myself. So the first one, the left one, I can co-sign, I, I can co-sign that on yes. the parenting side. So the first one's like my first son, my first kid. Okay, challenging, you know, crying out for help. And I took it all the way to the breaking point. I mean, there were signs leading up to it where I was in a lot of pain, but I didn't realize I had this condition. For example, when I was pregnant and I would try to run, I ran through my pregnancies. I was, I would be limping around the, the rest of the day with my hips. And I was told it was just around ligament pain. So I was kind of, I didn't know. I was ignorant. Um, so that one. And it could have been, right? It could have been more than one thing at the same time, right? It could right. have been ligament Maybe. pain and the hip issue, right? I'm I mean, sure who's to say? Because I had a huge baby and a lot of weight. I'm sure that didn't help the hips. But my left one was worse. Gotcha. The way the dysplasia was too. The right one had some issues, but it wasn't crying out for help yet. It was the good kid. Just like staying chill in the background. Um, so we thought I had several years between the first and the second, you know, we knew this one was going to have to get replaced the good one, but we thought we had a few years. So I get the first one replaced on November 7th, 2022. That was tough. Went through all the PT, you know, got through the first three months, which is the hardest. Um, and during that process, the right one in, I think it was in February starts crying out for help earlier than we thought. 
I think because I was having to use it a lot to, well, cause I couldn't, you know, use this while, well, you know, while I was under, you know, my leg had basically been beaten apart. I've heard that surgery is completely violent. I was using this, this hip a lot and it basically was like, all right, it's my turn now. This little right. kid wanted attention. Right. You, you had, you had to compensate cause you were limping around. It was so tender. And then all of a sudden you just put all the oh, weight yeah. on it. I mean, yeah. the recovery was hard. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So I, and so I was like, I wrote my doctor and I, the assistant, and I was like, okay, I, I need to get an MRI. Like I was very proactive. I'm like, I am not doing this thing. And I saw how good the recovery was with the first one. So I was more confident this time. Remember, I wasn't confident going into the first one. I was like, I don't want to do this. This is nuts. But now I felt more confident. I trusted my doctor. So we were like three or four months out and I was like, all right, it's doing crazy stuff. It clicks every time I walk. I was having shooting pains down my leg. Now it wasn't nearly as bad as the left one, but I knew the signs. I knew, I knew what was coming. And it was, and so in my head, I did the math, thought it through. And I was like, do I wait this out a year and just wait till it gets really bad? Or do we just knock it out right now? So I weighed the pros and cons and, um, talked to my doctor about it. And ultimately we decided let's just knock it out in April. So it was less than five months later, I got the right one done. And my thinking was too strategically insurance starts our insurance plan starts in January. If I would have known I was going to get these two done five, less than five months apart, trust me, I would have had them done in the same year because it would have been buy one, get one free. That did not yeah, happen. Right. Everyone who has, everyone who has healthcare <laughs> deductibles knows what the January payment schedule can look like. Oh. And you're like, Oh my God, I haven't hit I my mean, deductible yet. Right. These, these puppies are expensive, man. I mean, I could have gotten a whole lot more done with, you know, anyway. But I'm, I love my hips now, but um, it's totally worth it. So I got it done in April, and my thinking was this surgery is going to meet all of our deductible out-of-pocket. It's, you know, a ton of money, this procedure. Basically, we're, I was going to meet everything. So that way I knew my PT would essentially be covered, and I wouldn't have to worry about it. And I wanted to have the maximum amount of months to go to, go to PT, and that's why I wanted it done soon. And I got to do that. I met an awesome PT. She's amazing. If you ever need one or a virtual one in Houston, oh, she like she, amazing. That's I can say so many great things about her. Anybody can message me. She does virtual, like I said. She got me to where I am now, um, and yeah, I got to go for the whole rest of the year, April to um, December, just now. Now I know there is no like line of demarcation with like not healed and healed, right? This is an evolutionary process. But at what point did you go? F- go from like um basically you were fully cleared to do you know either you know athletic stuff or like that you no no longer had like lingering pain in your hip okay first of all your questions are so good i love your questions this is like and i hope this is helping i hope this is helping some people out there if they are struggling whether it's hip dysplasia or something else because it's not over i was told so many times it's over and i really hope that this will give somebody like me who is searching for that you know um some hope uh, okay, so in my the heal the uh, total healing process for a hip replacement, according to my doctor, is eighteen months to two years. We aren't there yet. However, the first three months, there's a lot of pre. Okay, the, it's kind of okay. So the first six weeks after your hip replacement surgery is brutal. Walker, I'm using a walker. I can't even get out of bed. It's so painful. However, then once I can start kind of limping around, going to PT, um, I can't start driving until about six weeks either. Um, you have you go to your doctor, they check on, you know, they do the x-rays. I went to my doctor and then you have your, your three-month appointment. Once you get to three months, 
And you have little PT exercises that you're supposed to be doing because they have basically, your muscles don't work anymore. They are completely like numb. So, um, so once you get, so you have the six weeks with the, all the precautions, then they get lifted. And at 12 weeks or at three months, you go in for your next appointment. And at this point I can start walking in a little bit of running, but nothing crazy. Then when you get to six months, that he checks it again. And he said, now the stem, I'll have to show you a picture. The stem has now, um, at six months, um, I guess, completely fused to your femur. That okay. he said, that's why you have to be careful in those first six months, not to overdo it and be really careful because it could compromise the fusion of that stem that's been drilled into your femur or nailed in there. You know, so at six months, he's basically like, Carrie, you're doing great. You're taking this slow. Now you can start working on running a little bit more, you know, basically some intervals. He had asked me about that. Um, so at six months, that put after the second one, that put me in around maybe like October, September, it's October. So in October, I kind of got that clearance. So I started just slowly building up my mileage. I had started from scratch and, um, but he, and he's, he's given me the green light. We've had several checkups since. Uh, everything's going great. But ultimately, the full recovery, it takes 18 months to two years for everything to like probably swelling, inflammation, everything to completely be healed. But I feel now, great. That's great. That's great. Now, um, this might be too personal a question, but considering everything that's happened, this is a hot topic issue in America today. People having surgeries like this that the reliance and occasionally over-reliance or over-prescription of certain pain medications mm -hmm. becomes a serious issue with people who then have right. to rely on it. And then it becomes an addictive situation. How did you manage the pain and how did you try to put yourself in a potentially in a situation where you didn't fall into a dependence situation? Yeah, no, that's an excellent question. And I'm happy to talk about it. And maybe this is TMI, but um, one of the surgeons I went to, not Dr. Stocks, so they did prescribe me um, hydrocodone and muscle relaxers. The muscle relaxers were huge. Um, I I only stayed on the hydrocodone. I would say for like the first two weeks, my dog you know tried to wean off of it. And then nowadays you can you can alternate to, um, extra strength um, Tylenol. Oh, I couldn't take any anti-inflammatories for the first six months because it can compromise the healing. So I could do oh. like yeah, interesting. You can't take anti-inflammatories. So for the first six months, I would just take high strength Tylenol, but I did use the pain drugs um, and the muscle relaxers. I thought those were pretty intense and I'm not saying they aren't, but he wasn't worried about the muscle relaxers um, as much as those pain drugs. And I, you know, I, I didn't want to become dependent on him. However, this may be TMI, but I feel like a lot of your viewers will appreciate this. Um, one of the doctors I went to actually told me <laughs> that he recommends cannabis. <laughs> To his patients after these surgeries over opioids because you can't, I mean, maybe you can get addicted. I don't know all the research, but he recommends that at, um, instead of taking opioids because of the problem. So um, I didn't smoke joints or anything. I mean, I have two kids at home and I can't handle that stuff, but I did buy some gummies. They're legal here in Houston that have just a little bit of that THC in it and it would help me sleep and kind of relax the pain. I hope some job potential job people aren't like hearing this podcast 
and being like, all right, she's out of the running. No, I mean, I think it's, I, I think it's perfectly reasonable. I mean, you think about some of the, again, I'm not going to, I'm not going to demonize people are in pain. And, and I understand that like these medications, I'll just call them, these medications can be very helpful, especially right after surgery. And I'm not going to demonize anything, but at the same time, again, these are derivatives of very, very, very strong drugs and mm-hmm. it can be tricky. And we've seen millions of people across America who are addicted to you know, oxy or fentanyl and things like that. And it's a scary situation. So when you see someone going through um, a needed surgery and that can be very painful, especially in the hip area where there's not a lot of blood flow, like it can be, it's a lasting thing. It's not like a knee surgery where you get a ton of blood in the area and that can expedite the healing process. Um, It can get tricky. Uh, So I appreciate you, you going into that because it's a, I know if I was in that situation, it would definitely be some of the things that I'd be worried about. I mean, but unfortunately, if you're in a job, I wasn't in a, I wasn't in a job at the time. I'm a stay at home mom. I didn't have to worry about being drug tested. Again, these little gummies, they're called Delta eight. It's like somehow there's some loophole. I don't understand the whole weed thing and marijuana. (laughs) Probably your first person that's talked about this, but the doctor was all about it. He even wrote me a letter in the, in the event that I needed it, that he recommended it. Um, because it's better, it's the better, better choice. But um, if you do take this and you plan on going back to work where they may, you know, spontaneously drug test you, you need to be careful because even though it's legal and it's not technically the same as like the real thing, I guess I call it, it will show up on your drug test as THC. Right. And I think just like if you're a professional athlete, you can, there are like, you know, use exemptions. Right. So that that exact same sort of thing. All right. Well, thank you for diving into that. That is for sure. So you had the first hip done November, early November, 2022, a couple Mm -hmm. months later, had the other one done. So you're basically like, you know, 14 months after the first one, about 12 months or so after the second one. So where are you now in the process? Yeah. First one, I'm about, I'm over a little over a year. The second one, I'm only about eight or nine months, not even nine months. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Okay. But, but you know, just small detail. Okay. So, um, where am I at? What was the question? Where am I at now? Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's awesome. Like I'm, I feel like I made the right choice. I, I, I'm the depression is like lifted. Um, I, I have hope again. I mean, it's been a ride, man. And I feel like I've made it to the other side. And I said this before that I feel like Dr. Stocks, my surgeon unlocked this door to the second chapter of my running life. It may not, I may not ever get as fast as I was before. I may be, maybe I will. I talked to Polly. I've been messaging with Polly, you know, on who you had on your podcast about her ACL and she's, she's really motivating. And so, um, yeah, I mean, who knows? I'm 42 now. I may not ever get as fast, but that's not really what this is about to me anymore. The main thing is I don't have that pain. I forget that I have these metal hips sometimes. I don't limp around with my kids. I can carry them up the stairs. I'm not missing out on trick-or-treating or walking to the park. I mean, life outside of running is so much better. Um, the pain is completely gone. I'm, out, I'm trying to get my fitness back. That's hard. But I'm running pain-free. I just ran a half marathon. That's amazing. That is amazing. So what is the process once you're okay to start running? I know there's like, there's step by step by step by step. When, and can you describe the process by which you were okay to like run hard, right? Moving from like a run walk situation to an easy run situation to a race situation where the idea is no matter what your fitness, you're pushing. 
Right. I'm still not, you know, I'm still trying to figure that out because it's been so long. I'm not, I don't really know how to gauge my paces or how to, you know, I have my mental game in the running isn't there yet. But he told me after six months when he checked my x-rays again, he was like asking me like, so what are you doing intervals? And I'm trying to play it smart. I'm in this for the long game. Um, he was basically like, go nuts. And and I say go nuts. As runners, we know you can't do too, too, too much too soon. So I'm smart. I'm extra conservative. But basically, I can start, quote unquote, training for real now. So I'm doing some strides. I'm, I ran the half marathon. Um, I pushed myself. I, I, you know, I need to navigate how to pace myself all. I mean, I'm still, I'm new to the game again. I'm like a newbie, a rookie. Um, but yeah, I'm not concerned at all about training for real. I'm trying to take it slow and play it smart like we all do. So I don't get injured, but I'm good to go. And how has your, um, your strength situation changed? Obviously post-surgery, you're very specific, really acute kind of exercises that are necessary. At this point in the game, what does your strength, mobility, PT exercise regimen look like? I'm doing a lot of um, at-home stuff that I don't need weights for. Um, a lot of um, exercises that we probably all know, like that just focus on strengthening those glute specific glute muscles, um, like you know one-legged bridges. Um, you know, I use a band. Um, you know, the bridges with the weight on you. I guess I do have used the weight for that. Um, the monster walks, is that what they're called? Um, yeah, one, yeah. Squats, one-legged squats, specific exercises that target those muscles. And then my core, I'm trying to strengthen my core. I need to start working on my upper body again, but I just haven't gotten there. And you're doing a lot of other exercises in the meantime. Now, sure. So basically, pretty normal strength right. routine. Basically what I used to do aside from the upper body. I need to get into that. My upper body's weak, but yeah. So are you at the position, are you in the position now where your goals have evolved from just running healthy into actual, not actual like fitness-based goals, but like, again, before the goal was health, right? Like right. I want to run healthy. I want my right. my hips and my joints to be healthy. It seems like you've kind of crossed the Rubicon on that one. Are you at the point now where you have uh, running-related goals that start to mirror what you were setting for yourself back in 2014 and 2015? Yes. I don't know exactly what they are. I just started working with a coach, Mary Johnson. Like this hey! Week. Mary, I love run, Mary. Run, lift, perform, of course. She's so cool. She's rad. Oh, lift, run, perform, I should say. Okay, there yeah, we go. Yeah, yeah, she's so cool. And she had hip issues too, not the same thing. So she's awesome and can relate. So I just started working with her. So we're starting off slow. And like she had me do hill or, you know, starting off with like strides and a few hills just to test it out. Um, yeah, my goal, I don't have any specific, I'm going to do another half marathon. I just did the Houston half a couple weeks ago and I didn't have a time goal. Honestly, it was just my goal to, um, run it. I ran it in 152.59, which is great. That's fantastic. My PR just to keep, it was 131, but like, so what? Like Who I'm, cares? I'm just, I felt Who great. Cares? Yeah. Yeah. And my, we had like a group out there cheering and with these bright green sweatshirts that said like, I'm by, she's bionic and back or she's back in bionic. It was cool. Uh, they were awesome. But now I'm going to sign up for another one. And I'm basically just using these races as a way to kind of get back into it. And like I said, my, like, you know, when you're racing a lot in your, for us runners and we're, we're racing a lot, like you kind of know how to gauge and pace yourself in the races. I'm not there yet. Like when I was starting to hurt a little bit and it was kind of sucking at the Houston half marathon at the end, you know, I'm just not used to like, Oh God, you know, pushing through that. So I'm trying to gain some of my mental toughness back. Um, my ultimate goal is to qualify for Boston. Now I don't know the timing on that. And I'm going to be patient with it. It may be a year. It may be two years. It may not happen, but I am 
determined to slowly build back up and train for a full marathon and qualify for Boston. And hopefully, I mean, hopefully it's a year. It might be two years before I qualify. Yeah, and it's something that you've done in the past, and it's kind of nice to, to shoot for something that you think think back, like, all right, this is when I was healthy and rolling, and to get back to that obviously would be really exciting and, and a huge accomplishment. Sure. I mean, a BQ, no matter the situation, is an enormous accomplishment, and it certainly would be exactly that case now. Carrie, do you have any words before we go to people who are maybe going through a process similar to this or maybe the exact same situation that you went through? Um. Yeah, I mean, it's hard. I went through a lot of lows. When you're in this, it's, you feel lonely. You feel like part of your identity has gone. The thing is, um, with this type of injury and situation, when I didn't know if there was hope on the other side, a lot of things, you know you're going to get over a stress fracture and you'll be fine. This was a little bit different and confusing because I didn't know if there was hope. I didn't know if I would get back. But my main advice for anybody going through an injury or who's been sidelined is, you know, find your team. Make your team, your surgeon, do your research, find your surgeon, your PT, find all your people, make your team, find your support people before, you know, while you're, so you can have them, you know, it's a, it's a hard time navigating an injury and recovery. Second is make your plan at your, and have patience and, you know, be persistent. I mean, I couldn't even get out of bed. And so, and I had like little tiny exercises I would have to do, for example, I couldn't even feel my glute muscles. So like one of them was you have to try to squeeze those glute muscles. I mean, I was going to do those and I was going to be the bet, the best butt squeezer ever, <laughs> you know, focus on your plan and stick with each week, those goals. Um, <laughs> I know, right. Then I got to where I could use the walker and walk down the street. Eventually, like we talked about, I got to walk running. So celebrate each milestone. That's what you have to do. And I was going to say, too, it goes by way faster than you think. When you're in it, it seems like it's going to take forever. I'm still, you know, I still have a ways to go. But I say uh, celebrate each milestone. It goes by way faster than you expect or think. And I say this, and I mean it truly, I feel like I've gained more than I've lost. Maybe not my speed yet, but, like, I've gained confidence. I've gained strength. My kids have seen me go through this and they're, I feel like they're proud of me. It's a great story. I've been able to help people. People message me from across the world for, um, you know, who have gone through a hip replacement or who are thinking about going through one. So I feel like this has turned into something super meaningful. That's fantastic. Carrie, thank you for sharing the entire journey with us and continued good luck moving forward. Okay. Of course. Thank you so much for having me, Matt.